God, our Father, we are grateful today to know that you are God. Oh Lord, we exult and we rejoice in the greatness of your person, of your being, of your power. God, of your amazing love and justice. We praise you and we glorify you for your goodness. And Lord, we just look to you with much trust. For we realize that we are but dust and we are very weak. But Lord, you are strong. Oh Lord, we are subject to sin and to death. But Father, you have sent your son Jesus to cancel our sins and to overcome death and hell. In fact, you have completed that work and it is in that that we trust for righteousness before you. We thank you for your mercy that follows us all the days of our life and that, God, you have promised that now you're working everything for the good of those who love you who are the called according to your purpose. And Lord, our hope is firmly fixed on this truth that you have delivered us and that you are yet coming in the future to bring that deliverance in full measure and to deliver us finally from death. And so, God, to that day we eagerly look and, Lord, we look around at all of the calamity and the evil that is in the world And we pray that you would come quickly, God, and that you would arrest evil and bring it under your power. And we pray that we would soon see the Lord Jesus reigning upon his throne. And so, Lord, we just thank you for such privilege to have this knowledge and to know these things. And God, may we be heralds of these truths. May we speak of your greatness and of your power. May we warn people of the coming wrath. And may we tell them of the great refuge that is found in the cross of our Lord Jesus. And may we point people to him, O Lord, where they can be reconciled to you. We thank you for all that you are to us. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather in this place and to freely proclaim your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so that brings us to uh, our text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Today we'll be starting with uh, verse 3. And on your handout at the top of page 56. I just want to give you a brief overview of the things that we've been covering for the last three or four weeks. The first is we saw the second coming in vivid description uh, in chapter 4, verses 15 through 17, uh, the second coming, which Paul calls the parousia in Greek in this letter that he had mentioned in each of the first three chapters of the book of 1 Thessalonians. And then, if you will, he's kind of building up to this description that he gives us in chapter 4, which is very vivid and begins to give us many details about the second coming. The first of which that I pointed out to you was that the parousia, the second coming of Christ, is also the time when the church will be resurrected from the dead and translated, or if you will, raptured to meet Christ in the air. 
So what I am saying is, it's clear from the text of 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, that the rapture and the second coming are the same event. <laughs> Having talked about that in great detail, um, we then went on and talked about the fact that there are two resurrections spoken of in Scripture, and that those two resurrections are clearly separated by a thousand years. There is a resurrection of the righteous unto life, there is a resurrection of the wicked under, unto contempt and condemnation or damnation. And that those two resurrections are separated by a thousand years. And then um, we moved on and began to discuss the verses in chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. And there we learned that Paul was equating the parousia or the second coming with the Old Testament terminology of the day of the Lord. So that in Paul's mind, they were the same thing. So that when the parousia came, when Christ's second coming happens, that that is the day of the Lord. This is what Paul's point is in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, that the parousia equals the day of the Lord. And then we also made the point last week that the day of the Lord that's spoken of in the Old Testament, of which we read many verses describing what that was, we talked about the fact, and uh, this is at the bottom of your handout, page 54 and 55, that the full scope of the events of the day of the Lord cannot all happen immediately upon the second coming. That instead there is a conflation of events, or there is a confluence of events that's that's taking place there. In other words, since in the day of the Lord judgment, God is spoken of as destroying the present heavens and earth and all the people of the world <laughs> that are alive on the earth, that that cannot happen before the establishment of the millennial kingdom because there will be no fallen world for people to live in if God destroys the whole world. So, if you will, the way that I have resolved that in my understanding is that the day of the Lord actually is inaugurated at the second coming of Christ, but it is actually an age of time that lasts until the end of the millennium, at which time he destroys the heavens and the earth. So, if you will, the day of the Lord is actually something that lasts at least a thousand years of history. It includes... The second coming of Christ, the, uh, the resurrection of the dead in Christ and the rapture of living saints, the destruction of the wicked and ungodly at the second coming of Christ and the destruction of all world rulers and authorities and principalities, the establishment of Christ's throne upon uh, in Jerusalem, and, if you will, the establishment of his government over the nations for the millennial kingdom. At the end of that time, I'm sorry, I didn't mention the destruction of the Antichrist and the false prophet and the binding of Satan for a thousand years, during which time Christ will reign over the nations with no influence from Satan. Then the scripture says toward the end of Revelation 20 that at the end of the thousand years, the devil will be released from his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations again that he will gather them together for war and there will be a final rebellion of Satan with wicked mankind 
They will come against Christ at the holy city, and Christ will destroy them there. Then the scripture goes on to explain that at that time, this will be the consummation of the day of the Lord, when he destroys the present heaven and earth, he resurrects all the dead from all of the ages, then they are all judged at the great white throne judgment. And it is at this point when all of Christ's enemies are completely destroyed, including Satan, the wicked nations of men, and even death itself. The scripture says that death and hell will be thrown into the lake of the fire. And as we learn from Paul, the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. So that when death is destroyed at the great white throne, the scripture says, Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. He says, he says Behold, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the former heaven and the former earth had passed away. Behold, I'm making all things new. And there will be no more death or dying or crying or mourning or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Amen? And that great transition from the old creation to a completed and consummated new creation happens in the course of history. Are you with me? Everybody following me so far? Okay. So, if you will, those are kind of all the things we've been discussing for the last three or four weeks. Okay? So when you start thinking about your macro view of eschatology, right, what you want to have is just kind of an overview picture of these things. That's why I keep drawing this little chart on the, on the wall here, okay? It's just a little thing that shows time from the cross forward. And there's a period of time when the gospel's being preached. Then there's a period of time that the Bible speaks of that there'll be great tribulation, Right? then that's just prior to Christ coming and establishing his millennial kingdom upon the earth, which will last for a thousand years, at which the end of all of Christ's enemies will be destroyed, everything will be consummated, and the new creation will, will be absolutely in its fullness, and all of Christ's enemies will be destroyed. Okay? And at that point... We will be immortal, we will be imperishable, and so will all of the rest of God's creation. There will be no more dying, no more mourning or crying or pain. There will be nothing that will make you cry. There will be nothing that will make you mourn. There will be nothing that will cause you pain. Forever and ever and ever. And listen, this is the best part. Heaven comes down to earth. Okay? And the Bible says there that God will be among them and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and he will be their God. Amen? Amen. Forever and ever and ever. Are you with me? So all of you who thought we go live in heaven forever, wrong. We go live on the new earth forever, as Randy Alcorn so clearly uh, spoke about this weekend at the Claris Conference, right? So that, remember how he was talking about the faulty view of heaven that we all had and so on and so forth? Listen, there isn't a heaven that we go live in forever with God, right? Instead, God brings his presence down to earth and we live with him there forever in a renewed creation that the Bible calls the new heavens where the stars, the sky, you know, that, and the earth. A new heavens and a new earth. 
Okay? Heaven is the place where saints go with God right now in the course of history. Amen? But at the consummation of the new creation, listen, God is going to come down to the earth. And Christ and God are going to be there, physically present on their throne. Of course, Jesus is physically present. God is spirit. Right? So, if you will, um, that's a mouthful. Let's move on. <laughs> okay, so, today I'm, I'm going to deal with an issue that I, I, ha- I have yet to deal with that you, probably some of you are wondering. Uh, people have asked a couple of questions about it, but um, it deals with uh, the, di- the difference in my understanding between what's called the Great Tribulation Period and the wrath of God. In my mind, in my understanding of Scripture, those two things are two very different things. They are not inclusive of each other. They do not include each other, nor do they happen at the same time in in the course of history. Okay? So what I'm saying is, is that the Great Tribulation is a time when the Antichrist is revealed and does his evil works upon the earth a very short period of time in history. The Bible says in Revelation 13, 7, that that time is 42 months. Okay? That's 1,260 days. Or, right, three and a half years. All right? So, it says there that he was given power during that time. Uh, Who gives power? God gives power. Right? Like Luther said, the devil is uh, God's devil on God's leash. Right? And uh, <clears throat> if you will, what happens when the Antichrist is doing his wicked work are the events of the Great Tribulation period. Of which, Jesus says, those days are going to be cut short. Matthew 24, verses 21 and following. That those days are going to be cut short for the sake of God's elect. Okay? What this means in my mind is not that the three and a half years will be shortened. Okay? But that those days are going to be shortened or, if you will, stopped, ended by the second coming of Christ and the deliverance of his church. Okay? Because he goes on to say that If those days weren't cut short, what would happen? No flesh would survive. Right? Because this guy's working some major evil on the world. Right? Because he's what is he? Just an incarnate murderer. Right? That's all he is. And that's all he wants to do is rob, kill, and destroy. Right? Yeah. Right. And that's how he does it. That's how he steals and kills and destroys, through idolatry, which is his main chief act, which the Bible calls the abomination of desolation. You see, his system is, is not only economic. It's not only going to make everybody think he's got all the money fixed, the money problem's fixed, right? But it's a religious system. It's an idolatrous thing that he does. Sets up this image and causes all who do not worship the image to be killed. At least he tries to do that. Right? However, when Christ comes to cut that time short, he is going to do that for what? For the sake of the elect. 
And at that time, there's going to be a deliverance of a multitude of believing Christians. Okay? So, if you will, the pattern, though, is this. When Christ returns and delivers his people, what happens after that is wrath or destruction. Okay? That is the wrath of God that is poured out when Christ comes and brings it. Remember how they're hiding in the caves and the rocks and they're saying what? Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Right? And they're trying to hide from Christ when he comes and appears with power and great glory. Understand? But at that point in time, the Christians have been delivered. And what's left behind is fire from heaven. Destruction upon the earth. Destruction of the world authorities. Okay? So, if you will, these are the things that are happening at the day of the Lord. So, if you will, there's a rescue and then there's wrath. And this is a pattern in Scripture, even in the Old Testament. And so, if you will, the tribulation, the events surrounding the Antichrist and his wicked work, and the wrath of God are two separate events that happen at two separate times in history. The tribulation is cut short by the coming of Christ and the wrath of God being poured out. Okay? When he tears down the whole religious and economic system of the world. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Right? Are you with me? That happens personally at the hand of Jesus Christ. And the rulers who are performing that the Antichrist and the false prophet, will by him be thrown into the lake of fire, personally. Okay? Okay, so, <clears throat> if you will, that brings us to, to chapter 5, verse 3 and 4, which says, While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Now think about this in the broader context of the passage, going back to chapter 4, verse 15 through 17. Paul is describing the second coming of Christ and the resurrection of the dead in Christ and the translation of living saints. And then he goes on to say, about the timing of all these things, you don't need anybody to tell you because you know it's going to come like a thief. It's going to come suddenly. It's going to come unexpectedly. Nobody's going to know the day or the hour when this is happening, right? In fact... He gets here in verse 3, the people of the world are going to be thinking, it's a time of peace, it's a time of safety, and what? Sudden destruction will come upon them, right? Just like labor pains, he says, upon a woman with child, right? And you ladies know when that day comes, man, <laughs> ain't no turnaround from that deal, <laughs> right? Which is his point. He says, and they will not escape. There won't be any way out for the unbelieving world at that point. <clears throat> That's a key point, okay? I'll explain that. But <clears throat> So if you will, he says, when they are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction come upon, comes upon them. Notice then, as the unbelieving world is caught in the web of Antichrist deception, they actually think of it as peace and safety. Note the terms, while they are saying, seems to indicate that right at the time of the parousia, they will be saying this. Then the Lord appears suddenly. 
This happens as they do not realize that the looming judgment of Christ, which has been brewing for some 6,000 years of man's rebellion against God, is finally upon them. Paul describes what happens next as, Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. This is exactly how Jesus described his coming. On the very day he rescues the righteous, then sudden destruction comes upon the wicked and unbelieving. Now, I'm going to take you back to the teaching of Jesus again. And I'm going to show you how this is how Jesus taught it. Jesus taught it how? Rescue, wrath. Deliverance, destruction. Okay? Look what he says in Luke chapter 17. Now, in the book of Luke, the Olivet Discourse is recorded in chapter 21. However, there are passages of Scripture that are in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew and in Mark, which are in Luke in other places. This is one of those passages where in chapter 17, Jesus is actually just giving some principles about his coming kingdom. And here in chapter 17, verse 25 and following, it says this, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Look at verse 30. It will be just the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let no one who is on the housetop, whose goods are in the house, go down to take them away. And likewise, no, not the one who is in the field turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life shall lose it, and whoever loses his life shall preserve it. I tell you, on that night there will be two men in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other left. Two men in the field. One will be taken and the other left. You understand the principle here? When the coming of Christ happens, okay, it's going to come suddenly upon a people who's just eating and buying and selling and planting and building. You know what they're going to be saying? Peace and safety. Everything just goes on like it has since the fathers. Right? And Christ shows up in the sky. Power and great glory. Angels. Right? Dead in Christ. Living in Christ. And guess what? All the nations of the earth will mourn when they see him come on that great day and take all his people to be with him at his side in the air, in the clouds, with the great trumpet call and with the call of the archangel. Right? Angels, trumpets, deliverance, wrath. Understand? This is how Jesus taught it. He said, look, on the day the Son of Man is revealed, it's going to be just like that. Listen, as that angel is dragging Lot out of Sodom, you know what's happening? Fire and sulfur are raining down behind them. What's the principle here? The principle is <laughs> that the very moment that the righteous are delivered, the destruction is ripe, and it's coming to pass. You understand? This is his point when he talks about Noah. 
<clears throat> he says, it was just like this with Noah. Listen, everybody was buying and planting and building. And there's old Noah building that big old boat in the middle of the desert. And here's, there, here's a world that never even rained. No one's ever seen rain. And here's this guy building a boat on the land. And they're just mocking that fool, aren't they? Right? Just like you, preaching the gospel to people and telling them to flee from the coming wrath. And they're saying, what are you, nuts? What are you, some kind of religious fanatic? What are you, Noah? What kind of crazy man are you building this ark? God said it's gonna, he's coming with wrath. God said we have to prepare. God said we have to flee. This is the way he told me how. God said it. It was his words. He told me to build this ark. Right? And they're planting and building and buying and selling. Who needs an ark, Noah? Come on, man. Who needs an ark? We've got our things. (laughs) Up till the day Noah entered the ark and then the flood came and destroyed them all. You understand? The day that the Lord (laughs) shut the door behind Noah is when it was raining already. Can you hear the droplets on the outside of the ark as you enter in with Noah to safety? And comes the wrath, flood the world, ark afloating. You with me? That's the imagery in the Old Testament of the coming wrath of God. And so is it also with the city of cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and and now what is it? Uh, Zoim and I can't remember those cities. All those cities he destroyed on the plain, right? So, <clears throat> if you will, not only is the second coming of Christ inevitable, but when it comes, there will be no way of escape for anyone who is not ready. That is being a born-again Christian, or, if you will, what Christians do, living in Christ. Notice, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, and the end of the world as we know it will be upon mankind, and with utter finality and fierce judgment, the wrath of God will come down upon the kingdoms of this world and upon all the ungodly and unbelieving sinners who have ignored God's warnings and rebelled against his authority, and they will not escape. That's what the scripture says. Paul gives a more comprehensive and vivid description of what happens here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. There he writes, and he says that, to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out what? retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So what's going to happen when Jesus comes with his mighty angels in flaming fire? He's going to deal out retribution to the unbelieving world. But what's the first order of business? Deliverance. Rescue. Right? What we see happening in chapter 4, verse 15 through 17. The Lord will descend from heaven. He'll gather his people. And then what? Then comes the dealing out of retribution to those who do not know God, verse 8, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. So if you will, we get another vivid description of the second coming of Christ in the book of 2 Thessalonians in chapter 1. Isaiah writes at this time. He says in chapter 13, verses 9 and following, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. Sound like Matthew 24? And the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I shall make the heavens tremble and the earth shall be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. There is wrath coming. And for the unbelieving world, it's going to be sudden. They're going to be thinking it's just another day to buy, plant, sell, and build. And then sudden destruction will come. This is what the Lord has warned us of. Amen? Do we not have ample warning? God has warned of this looming judgment from even before the flood. As far back as 5,000 years ago, God's prophets were warning of his coming global judgment upon mankind. You ask how I know that? Because it's recorded in Scripture in the book of Jude, verses 14 and 15. Here's what he says. And about these also Enoch. Now who's Enoch? Well, he's the seventh generation from Adam. Okay? So Adam's seventh grandson in succession. Are you with me? That's Enoch. What did Enoch say? He prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You see, God's been warning about his wrath ever since there was sin. Didn't God even tell Adam and Eve before they did it? In the day you eat of that tree, you shall you shall surely die. And you understand that the wrath of God in its ultimate sense is the eschatological wrath of God in damnation. The, the ultimate uh, meaning of the wrath of God is damnation in the lake of fire, the second death. Okay? I mean, it's one thing to be on the earth and to be a, a wicked person or a wicked ruler when Christ comes and to be killed by Christ. It's another thing entirely for that killing, right, to result in eternal destruction away from the presence of his glory. You understand? That's the real meaning of the wrath of God. It's being shut out from his presence with an eternal destruction that lasts forever and ever. Well, if you will, God has been warning of this all of his prophets, right, 
have warned of God's judgment for sin. The great command of the gospel is what? To repent for the day of the Lord is at hand, right? For the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, right? And believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ by whose merits you can freely be accepted, right? And so the prophets have warned and warned and warned and Jesus warned and the apostles warned and here's Paul warning in chapter 5 in verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians. You know what he's saying? He's saying you better be ready and you better be alert and you better be sober because if you're not and you're in that camp of the unbelieving world Right about the time you're thinking things are all going just peachy, guess what? Sudden destruction will come. And guess what? They will not escape. You understand the point there? It's too late. It's too late. Right? Sound like Jesus teaching in the Olivet Discourse? Let me tell you. He tells a little story. It's called the parable of the ten virgins. Familiar with that? You got two kinds of virgins, right? You got the kind who are prepared and ready, have oil in the lamp, and you got the kind who are not prepared and not ready and don't have enough oil in their lamp, right? So what happens is those who uh, run out of oil, well, they go off to go see the guy with the oil, and while they're away, what happens? Pow! The bridegroom comes and takes those who are ready to be with him. Have you read the rest of the story? You know what happens to those who are left behind? They knock and beat on the door. And they say, open up for us. And the answer comes, away from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. You might have been hanging around with my virgins. You might have been hanging around with a lamp in your hand. But it sure wasn't burning very bright when I came, was it? You with me? You get the picture from Paul? Be alert. Be sober. Be ready. Don't be like those who are caught away with complacency and drunkenness and vain worldly things. Be paying attention. Do not be unaware. Understand? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Here he says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day would overtake you as a thief. Now think about what Paul is saying. He's saying the day of the Lord, that's going to come like a thief. Right? And when they're saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes. But here's his point. But you, brothers, you're not in darkness that that day should overtake you like a thief. In other words, you're going to be what? You're going to be ready. You're going to be aware. You're going to be alert. You're going to be sober. You're going to be awaiting. You're going to be looking for that day. Are you looking for that day? So are all true Christians. They're eagerly waiting. And you've got the light of Christ 
in your eyes, like a radiant bride, says the song, awaiting. Are you with me? This important truth needs to be held in correct balance. On one hand, Jesus taught us that we do not know the day or hour, but at the same time was saying that we should be aware of the events surrounding his coming so that we would not be caught unaware. Jesus made explicit statements about the fact that we were to be on the alert and to pay attention to the signs of his coming so that we would not be caught unaware that this day would not overtake us as a thief. This is what Jesus said. When he first starts the Olivet Discourse, you know what he says? You know, the first words out of his mouth, they say, Lord, tell us, what will be the sign of your coming and, and of the end of the age? And Jesus says, let me tell you, first thing, do not be deceived. Okay? Now I'm going to go on for two chapters, and I'm going to describe to you chronologically how all these things take place. And then I'm going to give you a whole bunch of other details and some parables to even explain it all. But don't be deceived. Okay? That's what Jesus says about the Olivet Discourse. Mark 13, verse 23, he says this, But take heed, behold, I told you everything in advance. Right through the middle of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus stops and he says this, Look, I've told you everything in advance. (laughs) Well, what's your point, Lord? (laughs) The point is, look, I explained it all to you. This day should not overtake you as a thief. You should not be unaware. You should understand what's going on. You ought to be able to discern the season of my coming. You ought to know when the sky is rumbling and the clouds are dark and it's about to rain. You understand? This is what he's saying. Look, I've told you in advance. I've explained it to you already. Okay, This is also the language of the apostles. I'll show you. But also in Mark 13, verse 28, he says, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already come tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. What are you trying to teach us, Jesus? He says, look, it's just like a fig tree that's about to bloom. When you see the buds coming out, what do you know? Well, you know, summer's right around the corner. Why? Because the fig tree is telling you so. (laughs) Right? This is right smack dab in the middle of the Olivet Discourse. And here's what Jesus is saying. He says, it's just like fig trees budding in the summertime. When you see the buds, guess what? You know summer's upon us. You know the frost has passed by. You don't need a weatherman. You got a fig tree. You with me? That's what he's saying. That's his point. And so he says, even so, you too, when you see these things happening, which things? <laughs> the things he's been describing in the Olivet Discourse, right? They're going to hate you and persecute you and put you to death. You're going to be hated by all nations because of me. This gospel of the kingdom is going to go to the end of the world. The, the Antichrist is going to be revealed. There's going to be a time of great tribulation. It's going to be unequal from the beginning of nations until that time, he says. When you see these things, when you see these things happening, you know what? He's right at the door. You know he's right at the door. I want you to recognize the signs I'm giving you of my coming, and I want you to be aware and paying attention and realizing that I'm right at the door when you see these things happening. Are you with me? This is what Jesus teaches us, family. 
Mark chapter 24, verses 24. Matthew, I'm sorry, verse chapter 24, verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, he says, what? I've told you in advance. He says, pay attention here. I've explained to you in advance what's going to happen. Same thing here. He's already talked about our persecution, our being hated and betrayed, the love of most growing cold, the gospel going to all the nations, the great tribulation period, the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, the Antichrist being revealed and performing that abomination of desolation. He's already explained all those things in the course of Matthew 24. And then he says, look, behold, I've told you in advance. They're coming with lying signs and wonders, but I've told you in advance so that you won't be unawares. Okay, which he goes on to explain later in the, in the, in the course of Matthew. He's going to tell us that. He's going to give us a parable that tells us if, if you knew what time the thief would be coming, you wouldn't have let your house be broke into, right? That's his point. He says, I'm giving you all these signs so you'll know when I'm coming. You will know. You understand? But the unbelieving world, man, just another day. It's just another day of peace and safety. It's just another day of buying and planting and building and getting married. Right? Luke 21, verse 27, And they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, what things? All the things he describes in the Olivet Discourse that are going to happen, right? When these things begin to take place, what? Straighten up and lift up your heads. Let me tell you, when they start persecuting you and you're hated by all nations because of Christ and the love of most are growing cold because of the increase of wickedness and the gospel's going out to all the nations and the Antichrist is revealed and the abomination of desolation is taking place. Listen, when these things begin to take place, listen, straighten up your heads and, and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. You understand the teaching of Jesus? 29, he told them a parable. Behold, the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you shall see it. And know for yourselves that summer is now near. Even so, when you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Listen what he says. Be on guard that your hearts may not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day come on you suddenly like a trap. You see what Jesus is saying? I'm telling you in advance that all these things are happening. And I'm explaining to you that when these things happen, you know that the kingdom of God is near. It's even right at the door. He says, so therefore, be on your guard so that these things won't come on you suddenly like a trap. You understand? You see how what Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians 5? Uh, Paul's just teaching you what Jesus taught us. I would say, according to the Lord's own word, just like he said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15. This I say to you by the word of the Lord. In other words, I'm just quoting the Olivet Discourse here. Right? Not verbatim but just the basic principles that are laid out there. Okay. I hope you're following me on that. 
He goes on. That day, so that that day not come on you suddenly like a, like a trap. For, listen, it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. He says, but keep on the alert at all times, praying in order that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Here's what Jesus is saying. Be on your guard. Don't be drunk. Don't be caught away by the worries of life and by vain, dissipating things, he says. But instead, listen, keep on the alert when? At all times. Right? In fact, the parable of the ten virgins was designed to explain this truth very clearly. Verse 10 of Matthew 25. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And what? The door was shut. And later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered and said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Okay? Now, Here's another thing I haven't explained to you, but this is another reason why I'm not a pre-tribber. Okay? It's abundantly clear in the text of Scripture that nobody is going to be saved after the rapture. (coughs) Is not the parable of the ten virgins the most crystal clear teaching about that? What is the point for those who are left behind? Not that there's a way to be saved. <laughs> Let me tell you, the door was shut. Right? Now, I want to show you something. This is the only place Jesus said this. Open your Bible to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. I'll tell you what verse here. Let's see. Verse 24. Luke 13, 24. So, okay, here's Jesus. He's, he's going along. He's teaching the disciples in various places. The heading in my Bible says this is where he's just teaching in the villages. Okay? This isn't the Olivet Discourse. This is just a place where Jesus is just expounding truths from the kingdom of God. Listen to what he says. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Why should we strive, Jesus? For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. You see that? Have you ever heard that before? Have you ever heard that there are going to be people who want to get into the kingdom of heaven and can't? What are we saying? Is not the gospel doors swung wide open? The doors of God's mercy are swung wide open. Who will God turn away? He's not turning any away until the door is shut. You understand? Look what he says. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. Man, we hung out with your virgins. We had lamps in our hands, man. Yeah? 
We ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. Okay, what's Jesus' point? His point is, look, once the owner of the house gets up and shuts the door, then you'll stand outside and knock and plead and say, Lord, open up for us, and I will say, away from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. So, this is why I'm telling you, if, if you hold a pre-trib rapture position, okay, the only way you can explain the presence of saints during the reign of the Antichrist, okay, which appears, these saints appear in the book of Second Thessalonians, and they appear in the uh, book of Revelation, specifically chapter 13 and 14, right, where he's doing his thing, and there are these saints who are, He's making war and conquering these saints, which is just a quotation from Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. Okay? If you hold a pre-trib rapture, there are people who are there during the reign of the Antichrist who are called saints. Okay? Who, in the words of Revelation, obey the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The very last verse of chapter 12 of Revelation. Okay? If you have a pre-trib rapture view, then you have to have this group of people you call the tribulation saints. Why? Well, because there they are in the midst of the tribulation. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. Right? And of course, if you've read the, the Left Behind series, right, these are the ones who are left behind and the Jewish evangelists go out and they preach and these people get saved and then they wind up being killed under the reign of the Antichrist. True? Well, why is that? Because in Scripture, when you see the Antichrist, he's there killing saints. Okay? So here's my point. My point is, is that this teaching here and the teaching of the, the ten virgins clearly says that there won't be any way to be saved after the owner of the house gets up and shuts the door. If you're not the ready virgins, if you're not the one who are on the alert then like Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, sudden destruction will come upon them all and they will not escape. And like Jesus said, then the flood came and destroyed them all. Or the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. What I'm saying is the day that Jesus rescues his people, whoever's left behind is in big, big trouble. And it's, there's not going to be seven years of time where people are out preaching the gospel and people are getting saved. You don't find anything like that in Scripture. That's my challenge. You don't find anything like that in Scripture. Okay? You might be able to piece together a whole bunch of passages of Scripture and then imply and infer things from that, but there isn't any Scripture that, that says anything remotely like that. On the contrary, Jesus makes it very clear that if you're not ready when he comes, you're going to be destroyed. Okay? Paul is simply reiterating that in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3 and 4. If you're the ones who are saying peace and safety, right, then what's going to happen? Sudden destruction is going to come upon you. When is that? At the day of the Lord. You know what happens at the day of the Lord, right? I just read Isaiah 13 to you. 
God is going to exterminate the sinners from the land. He's going to punish the world for its evil. He's going to destroy the sinners on the earth. Okay? It's terrible. It's going to be terrible. And let me tell you something. They will not escape. There won't be any escaping. When the Lord comes, when he shows up in power and great glory in the sky and he raptures the church and he raises the dead in Christ and he's there in the sky. Listen, the nations of the earth are mourning. There's no sun. There's no stars. There's no moon. Jesus is in the sky bright as ever. And they're all mourning. What are they saying? Read Revelation 6. They're going to hide in the caves and in the rocks and say, hide us. From, from, from him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the day of his wrath has come. And that's just Old Testament imagery from chapter, Isaiah chapter 2. When the day of the Lord comes, and men try to hide in the caves and in the, in the holes in the ground, it says. <laughs> Family, listen, we don't, we don't long for the day of the Lord in this sense. We long for the deliverance. <laughs> right? Man, we wouldn't wish on our worst enemy what's coming on the day of the Lord. Are you with me? So anyway, I was making the point. This is one of the chief reasons why I'm not a pre-tripper. Because Jesus makes it crystal clear that if you're not ready when he comes, you can't be saved. I, I, you know why this impacts me so greatly? When I was young, I was a teenager, and I was going to a church, and I was hearing the gospel preached, and they would have these prophecy seminars. And <clears throat> at these prophecy seminars, what the guy would do, he'd go through and he'd tell you all about end times and the, he'd warn you about the wrath and the day of the Lord and the Antichrist and all these things that are coming on the earth. And then he would make this plea at the end. And he'd say, come to the Lord while, while, uh, while, uh, while you can be uh, safe. You know, The only problem was, was that in the course of his theology, it didn't add up. <laughs> because he was saying to me, look, if you don't come to the Lord tonight, don't worry, you'll have seven years. And, 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 and you know, I'm going to tell you people think that way, because I thought that way. Let me tell you, I was wrestling and struggling with my sin as a teenager. And I didn't want to come to Christ. I mean, I wanted all the benefits and the blessing of Christ. I kept coming to church to hear the gospel. I wanted to be forgiven by God. I wanted to be reconciled to God, but I loved my worldly friends. I loved my sin. I loved all the wicked things I was doing. And there was a great tugging on my heart. And you know what I was thinking when that guy was telling me that? When that guy was telling me that, uh, you know, hey, if you don't go up in the rapture, hey, don't worry. Look, you can, you can be saved by believing the gospel. You'll have seven years to repent. That's how I was reasoning. I thought, hey, if, if I don't go then, well, then I'll know for sure that the, all this whole thing was true and then I can do my repenting, right? That, I, that's exactly how I was reasoning. Has anybody ever encountered that situation? Oh, there's others. That's if they get to that point. Yeah, right. Right, well, obviously, the, the reasoning is faulty, right? But this is what unbelieving sinners do when they hear the gospel. First, they try to figure out every other way to Sunday how they can be saved but Christ. Because <laughs> if they come to Christ, they've got to repent. And that's what they don't want to do, right? They love their dark. Men love darkness rather than light, right? So, so if you will, um, that's why the understanding of reading Jesus' words. When I read the parable of the ten virgins, I started scratching my head. I said, this doesn't add up. How does this add up? These who were left behind, they're not going to be saved. 
They, they can't get in. That's his point. Are you with me? Well, this is, this is in my un, uh, understanding of Scripture, it's clear in many places that this is true. I hope I've pointed out a few of those to you, at least so I can get you chewing on it. A few weeks ago you mentioned that during the thousand-year reign that at least it seems as if you said that those who are born during that time mm-hmm. have a chance to come to the saving knowledge of Christ. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really see a lot of support for that, and I don't really understand it, especially in light of everything you're saying right now. Can you... Well, what I'm saying right now happens all before the millennium, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So what is it specifically you don't, you don't have... Well, you're very clear that no one, once Christ comes back, has that opportunity for salvation. But you're saying, a couple of weeks ago, you were saying during the thousand years, they do have an opportunity. I'm talking about during the Great Tribulation period. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about what happens in the millennial kingdom after Christ establishes his throne upon the earth. So that's a good point. That's a very good point. Um, Not only that, but uh, as I've discussed in the past, the nature of the gospel doesn't change in, in the ages of history. However... What we preach about the gospel changes drastically in the millennial kingdom. Do you understand? Why is that? Christ is there on the throne in Jerusalem, right? So what I am suggesting here is that people are always saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, no matter what age they live in, okay? However, the gospel unfolds in progressive revelation as time goes on through history. That's what dispensationalism is all about. Right. Well, that's one of the central tenets of it, which I agree with. So the point is, is what is the message that we preach in the millennial kingdom? Well, to me, it's not quite clear. However, I know that God will save people and continue to save people as long as there's sin in the world. Why? Because that's what Jesus name is. (laughs) Jesus name means the Lord saves. Are you with me? And when he's there on his throne, let me tell you, he's going to be saving Right. So uh, to to answer your did I answer your question? Shall I try to restate it? The fact that no one is saved after the rapture is during the tribulation period because the tribulation period is cut short by the second coming of Christ. And at that time, he pours out his wrath and judges the world. And it's during that time that all of the religious and economic systems of the world crash and come to a screeching halt. Because Christ has, has broken into time and space in great power. And he is tearing down all those religious authorities. And he is destroying wicked people and sinners. Read the book of Revelation. Read the bowls of wrath. Read how God's wrath is being poured out. And um, people are dying as a matter of that. However, however, not everybody is going to die at that point. In other words, okay, the, the scripture also speaks of survivors that will enter into the millennial kingdom who are they who will po- also populate the millennial kingdom. Not to mention that there is a Jewish remnant who is saved through all of that wrath and tribulation and all of those things that happen. And those uh, that uh, remnant of Jews who is saved comes to faith in Christ at his second coming and they are the ones who receive the allotted inheritances by tribe in the land, according to the prophets. So I added a whole bunch of a mouthful on there. If I didn't answer that, I'll, I'll still try to clarify. Is that good? Okay. 
Sean, you're saying that God's election and, election and decree still applies in the millennial kingdom. Those that he has elected will come. We just don't know how. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I know how. They're going to come by faith in Christ. Right. I don't know how what the expression of that message will be like, being that now we preach a Christ who's in heaven who we can't see, but then we preach a Christ who's come and conquered the world and sits on a throne in Jerusalem. It's a strange thing. Um, there are many things we can't reconcile in the text of Scripture. Are you with me? And I'm saying one of those things that has me puzzled is, what will we say to people in the millennial kingdom about how to be saved? Will we say, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the lamb? Well, I suppose we will. <laughs> but it sure seems to me it will be abundantly evident to everybody that he's the king and he's the lamb and you ought to have faith in him. Are you with me? But, you know, scripture doesn't explicitly talk about that. The thousand years is described in, in uh, what? Seven verses in Revelation? Okay? All right. So let me just say this. I'm going to end here, but let me just say this. If there are questions that you feel like I haven't dealt with, that you want to know about or you want me to deal with, get those to me right away because we're going to run out of classes here in the, in the near future. And I'm more than willing to address any challenges to anything I've told you or passages of Scripture or anything that you'd like for me to answer get those questions to me and I'll try to address them before we let out for the year. The other thing is I'm going to try to find some extra time to continue to teach you a little bit before before the summer comes and I'll, I'll try to announce that to you so we can figure that out. Okay? Alright? Let's pray. God our Father, we are in awe of these amazing things that you say are coming upon the earth. We are so grateful, Lord, to know for sure that our refuge is in the Lord Jesus and that, Lord, he's coming to rescue us. He's coming to deliver us so that we will not be destroyed. Instead, we will be saved. And, Father, I pray uh, as we look into these things and there seems to be some confusion as we try to understand all the different passages of Scripture, that you would help us to be diligent in our study. Help us to continue to read the text of Scripture to try and understand. Help us, Lord, to be focused on what the Word says and let us take our stand there and not on what men say unless what they say is consistent with what is in the Scripture. Oh, Lord, I pray for discernment that you would help us to know and understand all the things that you have said concerning the signs of your coming and of the end of the age. And Lord, I pray that none that were within the hearing of my voice would be deceived concerning these things. But Lord, that instead you would save us. And so, Lord, we eagerly look to that day when you come and deliver us. We honor you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.